Welcome to Aquafarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, uh, coming to you from my office in Mountain Tennessee, uh, where I am an assistant professor, sorry, uh, I'm an associate professor, actually, uh, at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, who brings you this podcast. Uh, let's get right into it, and we're going to talk today about uh, a lot of updates, and we're going to start with uh, immunotherapy, taking two steps forward and two steps back. Uh, so what I mean by taking two steps forward is that pembrolizumab was approved for primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma in the third-line setting on June 13th. The day before, pembrolizumab was approved for relapsed uh, or metastatic cervical cancer for those that had uh, more than or equal to 1% of pdl one expression in the second line. That was June 12th. So two steps forward. Uh, on May 18th, the FDA sent out an alert uh, about a decreased survival in patients with bladder cancer receiving pembrolizumab and atezolizumab uh, as monotherapy if they had low PDL1 expression compared to platinum-based chemo. So basically telling people uh, these, this is not an approval, but these drugs are on the market. Don't use them for bladder cancer uh, if they have low PDL1. You should be using platinum-based chemo because uh, they live longer with platinum-based chemo. Uh, and that, and we'll get into the details of these. And then the next step backwards was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine on May 17th. It was a letter to the editor of three patients with a rare type of T-cell leukemia lymphoma, um, three patients who got nivolumab, three patients who had rapid disease progression after nivolumab. So let's start with the bad news first. So adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma um, is caused by human T-cell leukemia virus type 1, HTLV-1. And this was an NIH study that was enrolling patients with a high mutational burden and overexpression of PDL1 to receive nivolumab. So these are the right patients, right, to receive immunotherapy, high tumor mutation burden, and PDL1 expression. From everything we've learned, these are the patients who should do well. Well, the first three patients enrolled in the study, after one dose, all three patients had progression of disease. And there are several subtypes of adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma, or ATLL. There's a chronic, there's a smoldering, an acute, uh, and there's another category as well. So there's one patient with chronic, one with smoldering, one with acute, uh, ATLL, and all after one dose of nivolumab had rapid progression. Um, this was an NIH-funded study, and the lead author was a uh, faculty at Washington College of Medicine in St. Louis. And kudos to them for writing a letter to the editor so people know um, that, you know, as we'll talk about, maybe immunotherapy is not great for everybody. Um, so that was one example of, of, of immunotherapy not working and, in fact, being worse, which is something, or being detrimental even, which is not something we think about. Not only did it not work, but it was followed after administration of a single dose by, by rapid progression in, the, in three of three patients. Um, so that's obviously concerning, uh, and hopefully that's limited just to adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma. That was May 17th that was published in New England Journal of Medicine as a letter. May 18th, the FDA sends out an, um, basically a, a med alert, uh, or, or there's, as they're commonly or colloquially called, a Dear Doctor letter. Uh, by the way, Dear Doctor, one of my favorite songs by the Rolling Stones. Uh, it's almost the perfect country song. Um, so this letter was about the use of immunotherapy, specifically pembrolizumab, and atezolizumab in metastatic urothelial, which is bladder cancer. Uh, and this was uh, a three-arm study in both cases, both the pembro and atezolizumab, either platinum-based chemo, chemo, 
plus immunotherapy, so Kima plus Pembro, that was Kinate 361, or Kima plus Atezolizumab, which is Invigor 130, and then immunotherapy alone. And the immunotherapy alone are in the cohort that had low PDL1 expression, which isn't explicitly stated in the alert, but probably less than 1%. There was decreased survival in that group compared to chemo alone. And my guess would be in the low PDL1 expression group that this was not uh, like in the ATLL uh, 3F3 study, that this was not that the immunotherapy caused the disease to get worse. My guess is it did not work as well as the standard of care, which would be a platinum-based chemo. So probably cis or carboplatin with, with gemcitabine. Um, and the reason that I want to point out those two steps backwards with regards to immunotherapy is is you've probably heard this if you've worked in an ICU or done a rotation in the ICU, is that everybody does better with a course of steroids in the ICU. If, if nothing else is working, give them, put them on some methylprednisolone, and they'll usually get better for a little bit. Well, people have said something similar about immunotherapy. No matter the cancer, when nothing else has worked and you're out of options, just try them on immunotherapy. Um, and this, this, these two reports are a cautionary tale about doing that when there is no evidence to do it. Um, so I would certainly never advocate for just that giving an FDA-approved drug for a condition, uh, for a cancer, we have no data. Um, if there is a clinical trial that you can enroll that patient on uh, to, for, you know, um, uh, exploratory use of immunotherapy, by all means do it in the setting of a clinical trial uh, because then if it doesn't work, everyone's going to know about it thanks to these researchers and the FDA putting out this data that, that you know, immunotherapy was, was not helpful for these conditions. But it's not all doom and gloom for immunotherapy. Uh, on June 12th, we get the FDA approval for uh, pembrolizumab for cervical cancer. This is based off of Keynote 158. And this was based off of about 100 patients, but only 77 of whom uh, had greater than or equal to 1% PDL1 expression. And these were patients with cervical cancer who either uh, relapsed or metastatic uh, on or after chemo. And they were given 200 milligrams every three weeks of pembrolizumab. The median age was 45, so a younger patient population, as you might expect, with cervical cancer. 80% white, 92% squamous histology, what you would expect from a histology standpoint for squamous cell. Um, uh, 65% of these women had had more than two prior regimens in the metastatic setting, so very heavily pretreated group. So take that into respect when you hear this low overall response rate of 14.3% and then a 2.6% complete response rate. Uh, which is, you know, which is low, but still a complete response. So just to put this in perspective for, um, if you go to the Pembrolizumab package insert, it'll take you a week to read because it's about 3,000 pages with all the FDA approvals they have. So here are the overall response rates for a lot of different conditions for Pembrolizumab. So keep in mind, for, for this approval for cervical cancer, the overall response rate was 14%. So uh, metastatic melanoma after ipilimumab uh, exposure, 21%. Uh, Non-small cell lung cancer um, with more than 50% PDL1 expression, so 45 to 50%, 45% overall response rate. Head neck cancer, 18 to 16%, um, if it's more than 1% expression of PDL1. Classical Hodgkin's lymphoma, 69% overall response rate. Bladder cancer, 21 to 29%. Um, Microsatellite instability high or mismatch repair deficient. Colorectal cancer, 36%. I know that there are other disease states with high MSI or mismatch repair. I just did the colorectal cancer data. And then gastric cancer, 13.3%. Uh, so, you know, that falls in line with what we see for, uh, for gastric cancer, for head and neck, 
um, melanoma after ipilimumab uh, as far as this 14% overall response rate. Uh, now it's low, but still, some of these were complete remissions, um, and I will point out that the worst malignant cancer pain, the, the worst malignant pain I've ever seen is in women with metastatic cervical cancer. I'm talking IV hydromorphone PCAs with a, with a, you know, a basal rate of multiple milligrams per hour, still 10 out of 10 pain, completely uncontrolled, can't even sit down, it's so bad. Um, so this was a, a 200 milligrams Q3 week dose. There is Keno 028, which looked at 10 mg per kg in a lot of different cancers, including cervical cancer. And even at that higher dose, they saw an overall response rate that was comparable, 16.7%. So there is a little bit other data on this, but again, we know that 200 milligrams is probably the best dose for pembrolizumab. So that's good. Always nice to have more options for any cancer, uh, including cervical cancer. So now we go forward to June 13th and the approval for primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma. And this is based off of Keynote 170. And this is looking at 53 adult and pediatric patients uh, is based is the approval uh, that relapsed after two lines of treatment or more. And again, it was either 200 milligrams every three weeks or two mgs per kg if they were pediatrics. And that's the dose in the package insert. So always good to get an approval for kids to have some dosing guidance. Um, Patients were excluded in this study if they had active non-infectious pneumonitis, uh, if they had an aloe stem cell transplant within five years, or if they had five years with chronic five years or more of chronic graft-versus-host disease or any autoimmune disorder, which is pretty usual for any autoimmune disorder. But because transplants are part of the treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, you do have those exclusion criteria in people with a recent aloe. Uh, overall response rate: 45 percent, 11 percent CR. And the duration of response was 1.1 to 19.2 months plus. So there was at least one patient who had a response that had lasted more than a year and a half and was still ongoing. Um, so, you know, one thing that's a little confusing is that the approval is for adults and peds. Uh, if you look in how they describe the study, they say the median age of patients was 33 with a range of 20 to 61. And I wouldn't say somebody is 20 the lower end of that range is a child. So that, I, I don't quite know where that came from, if there's more data that hasn't been reported yet. Um, so uh, there's also Keynote 13, which was published in Blood 2007, which was looking at the 10 mg per kg dose of pembrolizumab, overall response rate of 41.2%, so similar to what we've seen here. Um, and I will point out that the uh, what we have saw here as far as a you know, high response rate with primary betastinal lymphoma primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma makes sense because it's got some features of you know, classical Hodgkin's lymphoma and some features of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So it's very close to the response rates we saw for classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. So when you take these two steps forward, two steps back, uh, you know, we can kind of say that the book is still being written on immunotherapy. Uh, and in fact, while the book is being written, uh, the first, second, third, the early chapters about immune therapy are being rewritten while the later chapters are being written. So we're, of course, going to need longer follow-up and comparative studies needed. You know, we need studies comparing Nevo to Pembro to Tizolizumab for all these things to, to ensure what most people think, which is that uh, they're probably equivalent, as well as combining uh, immunotherapy with standard first-line options, such as the, you know, uh, immunotherapy plus platinum-based chemo for metastatic bladder cancer. Okay, so a couple other things that, that uh, have come out since we did a last updates uh, in Onco Farm series. Uh, the Murano study, uh, it was actually published back in the New England Journal of Medicine in uh, March of this year, but on June 8th, 
um, based on this study, Murano. Venetoclax was approved for CLL. Now, wasn't it already approved for CLL, John? It was. It was approved back in uh, 2016, in April 2016, for CLL with the 17P deletion. deletion. This approval is for any patients with CLL, uh, regardless of cytogenetics. And about 400 patients in Murano were randomized to either bendamustine rituximab at the standard dosing or venetoclax plus rituximab. Importantly, the ramp up of venetoclax uh, was started prior to adding rituximab. And as you probably know, you have to ramp up the dose of venetoclax because of the risk of tumor lysis syndrome. So you do 20 milligrams for a week, then 50 for a week, then 100 for a week, then 200 for a week, and then you do 400. And it's not until you get to 400 that you add in the rituximab. And for, for both of these uh, uh, regimens, whether it's VR or BR, the rituximab dosing was 375 milligrams per meter squared for the first dose and then 500 thereafter every 28 days. Um, any study with CLL is probably not going to show an overall survival benefit because of the, the chronic nature of the disease and the long follow-up you'd have to see uh, to do that. Uh, and the, the overall survival date is immature for this. I, I, we might see it for this because the progression-free survival data is drastic. A hazard ratio of 0 0.17. It's, that's a really low hazard ratio, really good. And, and when you look in the article, these progression-free survival curves on the Kaplan-Meier, they separate like, I mean, if you think of, of angles, you know, it's almost an obtuse angle. I mean, it is big. It is a huge separation curve. So really impressive results that we see here uh, for these CLL patients. So you're going to see a lot more venetoclax, which is an oral drug, uh, given in combination with the IV rituximab after the ramp up. Again, tumor lysis syndrome, lots of drug interactions to worry about uh, with venetoclax as a 3-4 substrate uh, in these patients who are immunocompromised and may very well be on things like fluconazole, voriconazole, etc. for fungal infections. Okay. June 13th, bevacizumab and uh, like a carboplatin paclitaxel-based regimen. Bev is approved in the first-line setting for advanced ovarian cancer uh, after debulking surgery. And when I say ovarian cancer, I mean not just adeno of the ov of ovaries, but also fallopian tube or primary peritoneal cancer. I kind of lump them all together as ovarian cancer. Uh, we're not talking about germ cell tumor of the ovaries, which is what you would see in younger women like testicular cancer. Um, we have to go back in time to December 29th, 2011. Um, two studies, GOG218, and the GOG stands for Gynecology Oncologic Group, that's a cooperative group, and then ICON7. ICON7 was the industry-sponsored study. So two studies are published the exact same day in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, both of them showed a progression-free survival benefit with bevacizumab. Neither one showed an overall survival benefit. Um, Basically, the, the studies were set up the same, except the GOG study used 15 mg per keg. The industry-sponsored ICON-7 study used 7.5 mg per keg, uh, and they continued BEV uh, until progression, whereas in GOG-18, at the higher dose, they did it for uh, 22 cycles, basically two years. Um, and you see, you know, like a six-month median progression-free survival, um, not a significant overall survival. Uh, what's funny is, the FDA approval is based on the GOG study, the cooperative group study, the one the academics put together and designed it, not the study that the, that the uh, drug company put together. Um, now, the, in this rapid era of FDA approvals, this comes almost seven years after the studies were published. Uh, 
so there's not any new information here, so this is probably not going to change practice. The NCCN has had these bevacizumab-based regimens as 2A recommendations along with everything else. Uh, of course, the best regimen you could give for ovarian cancer after optimal debulking would be an interperitoneal-based chemotherapy regimen. Um, so I'm not sure that this is practice changing, but it is FDA approved now for ovarian cancer. So another approval for Bev in a setting with a PFS benefit, but no overall survival benefit. Uh, and before I end, I'll just say that uh, in this, uh, today's issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, there's an article about sodium thiosulfate to prevent cisplatin ototoxicity, and it was shown to do that, and it did not compromise outcomes in specifically children with hepatoblastoma, so this is a pediatric uh, study. Uh, cisplatin was given 80 milligrams per meter squared over six hours. After the cisplatin was done, another six hours later, they got the sodium thiosulfate, 20 grams per meter squared over 15 minutes. Um, and they got four cycles of chemo, then surgery, then two more cycles of chemo, I believe. So based on this study, if you have a child with hepatoblastoma, I would certainly look at doing this and probably do the sodium thiosulfate for other indications. I would wait until we see that sodium thiosulfate or any chemoprotectant does not uh, affect um, uh, cure rates long term. So especially for something like head and neck cancer in adults with cis 100 milligrams per square plus radiation would not be thinking about doing sodium, sodium thiosulfate uh, until we see that specific data in adults. All right, I'm done. Uh, I got to go take care of some patients. Uh, thank you all for listening. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at OncoFarmPod. Uh, or follow my personal account at FarmDeepNib. And please find us on uh, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, rate us, review us on iTunes, and let us know what you want to hear uh, next week and over the summer. Um, and as always, I hope to see you all a little further down the road.